So going back to Thanksgiving one more time, the Wednesday of Thanksgiving week, I accidentally introduced a Christmas celebration, and I used to care a lot about making sure no Christmas until after Thanksgiving meal. You can do it that night, but COVID cured me of that. I don't even care. You can do Christmas whenever you want to. The only thing I care about is this. Those of you who start listening to Christmas music Early, early, like all year or early in November, do not get mad at me when I am still going all the way through the right end of Christmas season, which is in January. I'll come back to that in a minute. But the Wednesday of Thanksgiving week, we took our family to Barnes & Noble. We love looking at books. We love books. They're all over our house. They're all over my office. They're all over the garage. We love books. I've grown up on books. Um, We love reading them. We love buying books when we haven't read the books in our stack yet and just adding to that. But there is actually a Christmas celebration around books. If you hadn't heard of it, it's Icelandic, Scandinavian. It comes out of the cold parts over there in the Europe area. And I will butcher the name if I try it in the original language, but in English, it's the Christmas book flood. And so I accidentally, but wonderfully, took my family to Barnes & Noble. We bought books. We went home. Everybody ignored each other and read books that night. And the celebration of Christmas Book book Flood, um, my brain's doing it, trying to get it in the original. It's Jala Bok Flood or something like that, Hala Bok Flood, something similar to that, which I totally butchered. Apologies to anybody Icelandic. But... The Christmas book flood, what you do is you give books at Christmas time, and then you go drink hot chocolate and read the book. Like, part of the celebration is the reading of the book, not just the giving of the book. And they all, maybe because it's a really cold place, they all hunker down in different parts of the house reading the book they just got for Christmas. So as we left, I realized, oh, I wanted to do that this Christmas time, but I always forget these extra celebrations. But I love talking about this with our students. If you go talk to your parents, you can actually make a great case for more presents, sorry parents, more presents at Christmas time if you know how to lay out the case. So there's another one, the Christmas book flood. You can work it in there. Technically, it's Christmas Eve. But if you already have Christmas Eve celebrations like coming to grace, then you can fit that in wherever you want to. Here's some of the many ways to celebrate Christmas, though. We have Christmas Eve. You have Christmas Day. We have the Advent Sundays of Christmas. But if you also want to add it in there, coming up very soon is St. Nicholas Day. It's December 6th. That's not the red-suited St. Nicholas. That's the actual Christian St. Nicholas who started kind of the whole gift-giving thing, or at least gets credit for that. So it's St. Nicholas Day. I always forget that one until it's too late. I literally have no excuse. It's in my sermon right now, but I will totally forget a couple days from now and wake up or partway through the day go, oh, that's right, that's today. Another one, one I love celebrating, I already referenced it, the 12 days of Christmas. They happen at and after Christmas Day, not before. You're not going to hit the 12 days of Christmas on December 15th. That's too close to my anniversary. That's the day I graduated from college. The 12 days of Christmas start on Christmas Day, and they go through Epiphany, January 6th. So don't take your ornaments down until January 6th. Don't turn the Christmas music off. If you started in July, don't give me a dirty look when I'm still going on January 5th. I'm in the official days of Christmas, and I stubbornly do that on my front lawn with my inflatable nativity uh, until the very last moment, even if we started taking other things down 
just out of necessity to de-decorate, which, by the way, is a Grinchmas party when you start taking things down. But you have the 12 days of Christmas, Epiphany, January 6th. If you want to go Orthodox, by the way, it's not even until the middle of January, so you can just keep going on that. If you forget to take your stuff down, your lights down, just tell the HOA that. I'm Orthodox. We go all the way until the 17th, 18th, 19th. It depends on the day. But also, don't forget one more. And kids, you can try, you'll lose. But you can try to make this argument with your parents. If you want more gifts, it really just means they get spread out. But you can also point out that we should not forget the eight crazy nights of Hanukkah. Because that's where we find Jesus in John 10. It's actually in Scripture. That doesn't mean Scripture is telling us we have to celebrate it. But we see Jesus celebrating Hanukkah, or at least present in Jerusalem at Hanukkah, which is likely celebrating it, in John chapter 10. Turn with me to John 10, verse 22 to 42. And this is a Christmas sermon a Christmas passage, you might not realize it, but it's winter, it's going to point that out, and it tells us the Feast of Dedication, that's Hanukkah. So Jesus is walking around Jerusalem in the winter, the cold, dark of winter, at Hanukkah time, probably celebrating it. That's why the Jews went to Jerusalem on these celebrations. It's the whole nation gathered together, Psalm 122. It's a song of ascents. One of the psalms that they would sing as a nation as they gathered together in Jerusalem. That's why we started our service with that this morning. John 10, starting at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you were the Christ... Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blasphemy, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him. But he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. 
Go all the way back to verse 22. As I said, it's the Feast of Dedication. John emphasizes it's winter. They know that. They know when the dedication happens. So why is he saying it's winter? Well, partly it could be just to help those of us who come late, came later and don't know what it is. But most likely it's this. He's emphasizing it's dark. He's pointing out to them what they already know, but it's to lay out right before Lazarus and then right before the cross that this part of the Gospel of John, it's the dark of winter and cold. It's a theological statement possibly as much as a historical and geographical or uh, um, climate statement. He's declaring to them, yes, I know it's dark. It's very interesting. Don't miss those things as you go through Scripture. It's the intricacy of Scripture, which means, or which is why we can never call it boring. There's all kinds of detail in there that a, a, an intelligent person would never use that bad of a description of Scripture, and yet people treat it as such all the time. We make a big deal out of that in our youth ministry. This is not a boring book. It's a dangerous book. It'll change you. It's a powerful book. It'll change you. But it's not a boring book. As you're reading through it, make sure you're reading through it correctly. Why would it point out winter? And the answer most likely is cold and dark. They know when their festivals take place. The other thing about the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, though, is this. You might not know your history, but it comes in between Malachi and Matthew. It's the intertestamental period that's known as the Maccabean period. And it was another moment in history, stop me if you've heard this before or if you're living it out right now, where the nation of Israel was being oppressed. And they look like they're losing or they've been attacked and are being attacked. And then God delivers them powerfully in a way that caught their attention. And Hanukkah comes out of it. It's not one of the Old Testament law prescribed feasts or celebrations, but it is one like Purim that pops up in Scripture. Unlike Purim, it's not detailed in Scripture. And yet what we see here is Jesus, an average Jewish man, we know much more than that, but an average Jewish man in Jerusalem during Hanukkah, which probably means Jesus, being an average Jewish boy, grew up with a dreidel and celebrating Hanukkah and lighting a candle and fully divine because he was anything than just an average Jewish man, even though he was an average Jewish man. We see him at a Christmastime celebration. Right around the corner, by the way, in John's gospel is the cross. Half of John's gospel deals with the Passion Week. Immediately after this is Lazarus, and then after that is all the Passion Week. It's all the cross. That's John's focus. So that Christmas-Easter connection, John got it. Whether he would describe it the way we are right now is almost irrelevant, but he's connecting it just like we do right now. Christmas and Easter are intricately connected. We even see them butted up against each other in the Gospel of John here. So you have this picture of Jesus doing the, the Jewish celebrations. By the way, little side, I think there's only one time that we see Jesus in Jerusalem that is not detailed as a festival. You see him celebrating all the biblical festivals, except I think Tabernacles doesn't get spelled out. 
And then you see him here at another festival. It's kind of interesting. He stayed away from Jerusalem until the cross, except all the festivals. There's another moment when his brothers are challenging him. You go up now, and he says, I'm not going up now. And people look at that and say, well, Jesus lied, which is a problem. Don't go there. He's not lying. What he's saying is it's not time for the triumphal entry yet. That's coming later. And then he sneaks up quietly because it's not time for the triumphal entry yet. He's going to the festival that was the law. But he's not going up to do what his brothers are pushing at him for. Because that's ornery brothers. He says, my timing. I'm going to go to the cross at the right time. I'm not going to preempt it. I'm not going to circumvent it. There's a plan and I'm following it. But we do see him up at at the festivals or in Jerusalem at the festival time because he's supposed to. He's fulfilling the law. Here he's just fulfilling Jewish culture and history. But he's celebrating who God is and how he relates to the Jews, his people. It's very interesting. That's verse 22. There's a lot in that background there. Verse 23, it points out the calling out of Solomon. I don't know why. Other than this, it stamps it in a historical place. That's going to be a prominent part of this passage, which goes to the evidence for Jesus. Jesus is talking about it with his detractors. Just believe the evidence. For us, it's a different aspect of evidence. This is rooted in Jerusalem in a real place that you can go visit, that you can go find the ruins of and walk right where Jesus was walking and read John 10 and go, this is where his Hanukkah moment happened. It's a pretty cool little tidbit that sneaks its way into history. Don't think that's an accident. God's saying, hi, I was here right at this time and right in this place. So you cannot erase me from history, which you will try to do. And he puts it at a very particular spot. You can go to the nation of Israel and you can see where Jesus walked. Don't worship it. It's just a place. But there is significance in it because he was really there. These aren't made up stories. These are actual historical accounts. And then verse 24, we get into their interaction a little bit. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. What's with the suspense, Jesus? If you're paying attention to scripture, he was the worst mystery writer of all time when Jesus was walking around. There's mystery in the Old Testament and things that had to get connected together, although don't think mystery like impossible to figure out. Think mystery probably more like uh, a thing we would never anticipate, expect, and we aren't that good at connecting the dots sometimes, but they're right there in front of us, so I didn't figure it out, or but I didn't figure it out probably would be a better way to say that. Why are you keeping us in suspense? And if you've read John, the answer is what suspense? There's no mystery in the sense of they couldn't figure it out. It was too hard. But they didn't figure it out, or at least they didn't want to figure it out. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And he says, I did. Which time do you want me to point you to? Keep in mind the timing of this. In John, again, the cross is right around the corner. The next chapter is Lazarus, which happens right before Passion Week. And this happens the Christmas before that, or for them, the Hanukkah season before that. It's months 
at most before this takes place. That means all of Jesus' ministry has already played out. So everything you see in the other Gospels where Jesus says, I'm God, I'm going to the cross, and it's in any kind of crowd, or as we're going to see in here, and it uses the word again when we get to it, somebody picked up a rock to throw it at him because he dared to claim to be God, that means they heard him say he was God and they understood it that way. And you can go back to Mark 2. I know it's a different gospel, but it's the same gospel, if you understand what I mean there. Mark 2, where they dig a hole in a roof, lower a paralytic down, and he says, your sins are forgiven, and they freak out. And then he says, okay, get up and walk so that you know that I could save him from his sins. And the same discussion happens with the same group of people, if not the exact same people, in some instances. So when they say, why are you keeping us in suspense? Don't believe them, they're lying. We do that all the time. Well, I, I don't know if you've really said it clear enough. There are teenagers now, I love my teenagers. Mom, Dad, I know you said I needed to clean my room I'll give you one for mine instead of picking it on, on my students. I know you said to clean my room, but to me, a sweater on the floor of my carpet counts as a clean room. My mom won that argument. I had to go hang it up on the hanger, which would be her definition of a clean room. The hole in the wall would tell you that I had an anger problem. That moment happened in between the argument and the sweater getting picked up, but the sweater got picked up because the room wasn't cleaned. I knew what my mom meant. I just didn't want to do it. So I chucked it in the closet. They're doing the same thing. Mom, why you got to not be clear on your instructions? You didn't say hang my sweater. And the mom says, I said clean your room. It's not that hard to connect that dot. We've all been there, at least on the picking up, need to pick up the sweater side, if not on the parenting side of that one. Why are you keeping us in suspense? Tell us plainly. I'm not keeping you in suspense. I did tell you plainly, and Jesus points that out. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. This is going to be a theme of the passage. He says, there's evidence. If you won't believe my words, then fine. Look at the evidence. By the way, his words are evidence too, but... Go look at what I'm doing. If you've missed what I said, pay attention to basically why you showed up. You're walking around because I'm getting people's attention because I'm doing these amazing things, which, by the way, are the living out of what it says in Isaiah that I would do. The miracles are all pointing back to other things that were said about Jesus as he's doing them. Look at the evidence then. That's why you're here. You wouldn't have showed up if not. So your own actions are betraying that you already know. I have said it, and there's reason to believe it. But he, he doesn't chastise them yet on that. He just says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness. Go pay attention to them. You should know this. You're the scholars. You know what the Old Testament said. So are you going to believe what your eyes are telling you I'm playing out in front of you, which you should know. 
But then verse 26, and you've got to remember what chapter we're in, John 10. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. John 10 is the good shepherd passage. I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I call them by name, and they hear my voice, and they come to me. And then it goes into this story, a Hanukkah story. It says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm going to the cross, Easter. And then John puts in a Christmas story, a winter story. And he says, are you going to pay attention to the incarnation? Are you going to pay attention to me? You're celebrating what God has done back in the Maccabean period. Are you going to celebrate what God is doing right before you right now, which is so much bigger than keeping candles lit for a while longer than they should have been, which is an amazing story. I don't mean to belittle that. But the cross is infinitely bigger. That's why we celebrate this morning. You're celebrating in Jerusalem what God has done, and you are missing what God is doing eternally. And what's about to play out, pay attention. Pay attention to the evidence, what's being recorded about what I'm doing. Pay attention to my words. I'm telling you clearly, I am the Messiah. I am God. But I'm also telling you this. If that doesn't convince you, then you're not my sheep. And I just talked about that. John 10, it's the other half of the chapter. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way to salvation. I'm the gate. That's how that chapter starts. I'm the doorway to eternity and eternal life. But you have to believe. The evidence needs to convince you. When I call your name, you have to follow Verse 26, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Verse 27, this is almost a quote from what happens earlier in the passage. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. It's a quick, it's a quick almost quote, near quote summary of the whole first half of the chapter. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And if you don't know what I'm claiming, even though you've heard me, and if you don't believe, even though you've seen me do these things, then you need to wrestle with whether or not you're my sheep. I will say this. If you're in the room and you're wrestling with that, do I follow God? Do I not? Is, is the evidence convincing to me or not? Am I unconvinced or, or convinced away because of what I've heard? And I'm wrestling to try to figure out. It isn't a death sentence here. It's a wake-up call. Are you hearing Jesus' words and seeing the actions of Jesus that scream out to the world, this is our Savior, and not responding to it? Are you hearing him call your name in that statement, declaration, I am God, I am your Savior, and his actions that back it up in power and then following the good shepherd. And there's a challenge in that wrestling to follow the good shepherd. 
They could respond. Some of them do respond eventually. Not right now. Some do, I guess, right now, but not so much the religious leaders, at least. But he says, my sheep hear my voice. And you need to wrestle with the question, am I hearing Jesus call my name? Is he calling me to him? Or am I rejoicing because he's already called me to him and I'm already following him? But don't tune out that call. If you hear the gospel call, wrestle with that. Because John 10 is making a profound statement twice over. Really, it's more than twice, but in two different moments, twice over. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And then he says this in 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And he goes to this beautiful moment, beautiful description. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he goes, Trinitarian, even though it's only two persons of the divinity, I and the Father are one mentioned here. But it goes to the incarnation. He goes to Philippians 2. He goes to the Trinity. He says, we're one. There's one God. We're monotheistic. One God and three persons. We're one. But that picture, you might have heard this before, you might have thought of this before, you might have been pushed in a season like Job to the desperation where you've thought this before, but it's laid out here in the words of Christ very clearly how you ought to rightly think about it, where you are clinging to Jesus, or you see somebody and you beg with them, just cling to Jesus. Here's the theological picture. You're not clinging to Jesus. He's clinging to you, which is much more comforting. Jesus says, I hold you secure. In, in the five points of Calvinism, by the way, those of you who know what that is, the fifth one, the, the perseverance of the saints, this is why people who, who latch onto that like to reference it as the preservation of the saints. It's not that I persevere as I follow Christ. It's not that I persevere in holiness. It's that Christ is holding on to me, and I can't be shaken from his hand. Divine God is holding me. You can be a little kid in this picture. I'm not suggesting it. This is way off of theological grounds of this, but just as you're trying to picture it, if you're hanging off the cliff, you're not clinging to the cliff desperately hoping that you can hold on to Jesus with your sweaty hands and you're slipping away like all the movies play out. He's holding on to you. You can be the kid on the swing set that's being held by his parents and is secure and just has no hands, no feet, not holding anything. It's just, woo! That was really loud. Sorry, I forgot I was on a mic. I was in the youth room for a moment. It's like, yes, this is freedom. Now, should we cling to Christ? Absolutely. And in the Job moments, we're clinging to him because there's also the picture of a little kid that runs into his mom or dad's presence and latches on and won't let go. By all means, cling to Jesus, but know the theological truth. Your salvation is not dependent on you holding to him securely. Your desperation is not dependent on you holding him securely. He's holding on to you. And then if that wasn't enough, he says, and the Father's holding on to you. And he makes a theological statement about the incarnation and, and the Trinity. And if you want it Trinitarian, it's not mentioned here, but here you go. This would be biblical truth. And the Holy Spirit is empowering you to hold on to him. Because it's not your own power that's holding on to him either. But you have Jesus holding on to you and holding you secure, you will never lose your eternal life because Jesus has you. 
You are plenty capable, like a squirmy little toddler, to go fleeing away from your parents, but the difference is Jesus has an amazing grip, and you can't get away from him. And if somehow he could let you go, which he couldn't, but the Father has an amazing grip, so you're held securely twice over, and again, you want to put the full testimony of Scripture in there. If you are saved, the Holy Spirit is empowering you to clean back, but it's not your power that is successful or empowering that. It's the Holy Spirit. Yes, we do it, but it's him empowering us. It's a beautiful Trinitarian moment that just gets snuck in there in the middle of a Hanukkah story. How cool is that? Continues on. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. That's because they fully understood him. Oh, now we get it, grab a rock. But it says again, they've done this before. It's not the first time they understood, which is why Jesus did call them out earlier. Well, I told you, but apparently you were the kids that aren't paying attention and you're asking the dumb question, which is the one I just answered, but that's okay. There are dumb questions, by the way. If it proves you were not paying attention, that's called a dumb question. You can still ask it and you need to ask it if you weren't paying attention, but that is a dumb question. It just got answered. You should have been paying attention. But... Usually, by the way, it's right after the other kid asked the exact same question. But I and the Father are one. He says it clearly. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And they said, it's not your works. But that should have caught their attention. It's not because of what you did, which is telling us that you are backing up who you or what you're saying, is because of what you said, which we just said we didn't hear, but now we heard it. So it's Hanukkah, so we're going to take you out. It says, well, let's work, walk through that. Scripture said this. So what are you coming after me? The issue isn't whether I claim to be God, it's whether I'm not God and claim to be God, or I am God. And claim to be God. Because I, if I am God and I am, and by the way, John has I am all over the place. That's Jesus saying, I'm God. It's dropping Yahweh and then a description. And here, the I am, by the way, in 36, I am Yahweh, the son of God. Yahweh, the son. He puts another one in there. That one doesn't usually get credited as one. It absolutely should. The equation, if you're ever looking at I am, and it's not, a, it's not an exact equation. It's a typical linguistic equation, but it's this. Ego e me, Yahweh, I am, and then a description. And we like the ones. I'm the light of the world. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the gate. Those are all excellent. But then the other part of it is there's a reaction. And sometimes there's no description, just a Yahweh, I am, and a reaction. Sometimes it's a Yahweh with a description that's a little trickier. It doesn't make a great t-shirt, but it's just as significant. I am the son of God. And then a huge reaction. Well, that's why we're going to kill you. I don't know about you, but that seems like a strong reaction, right? I'm going to kill you is not our typical reaction. Well, our world's starting to get to crazy like that. But it's a strong reaction. It's because he said in their presence, Yahweh, I am. And they understood it. But he continues, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. If you're right that I'm not God, then don't believe me. 
You're right not to. In fact, you'd be right then to pick up stones and kill him. It's blasphemy in the nation of Israel, and it was the law to kill a blasphemer. They would have been right then. But if I do them, not right anymore. If I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the words then. If you don't believe my words, fine. Go to the works, which you just said, that's not why we're killing you. That's kind of entertaining. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And he reemphasizes. He says, I am Yahweh. I'm Yahweh incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, proving it to you with what I do, stating it to you, and I'm about to go to the cross to pay the price for sin. And they pick up rocks. They're holding it. They're ready to kill him. And then verse 39 Another example, the Bible's not boring, but we read it boring because we read it just like it reads. I know that doesn't make sense, but it does. Think it through, wrestle that one through. We read it like it reads. It's very plain and simple, but you have to imagine what's happening here. They all have rocks. If I read the sentence in a room that had rocks and was ready to kill me about my actions, there'd be a little more that was going on that was kind of meant to be read in between the lines. Again, they sought to arrest him but he escaped from their hands. They have rocks. They mean to arrest him, just like is going to play out in a little bit in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus lets it happen, in fact, orchestrates it. And here he says, nope, not time. I'm not going down at Hanukkah. I'm going down at Passover. That's significant, by the way. It's not Easter yet, right Year, time frame, wrong celebration. Hanukkah, pay attention. God's moving. But the redemption's coming at Passover. So don't stop looking. And what happens is they got rocks, they're ready to arrest them. This is all playing out. Imagine this happening during your Christmas celebration, by the way. That would be Hanukkah for them. All of this is playing out, and then Jesus just goes, no, not today, and leaves. How? They all want to get him. This time, because there's another one where it's like, did he just disappear? I mean, there's one where you're kind of left with, I think he did. I think he was there and then not there, and they're all wrestling with Yeah, I was just looking at him, and now I'm looking at Bob across the circle, and that's weird because there was a person there, and they're not there anymore, and they didn't move, but they're gone. There's one that's kind of that way. This one doesn't detail it that way at all. It's just, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. I'm just going to go this way. I'm leaving, and you can't stop me. And maybe it's even more impressive than if somebody just disappeared like when the hobbit puts the ring on. Because maybe it's all these guys that are going up and grabbing him and can't wrestle him down to the ground, but he's not wrestling them back. What would you do with that? If you went home and saw one of the videos going around from this morning was a bunch of cops trying to arrest a guy, and he's not fighting back, but they just can't touch him, that would get your attention a little bit. You're like, he's not, he's not going full Barry Sanders where he's just escapable, And like Houdini, he can't get caught. He just can't get touched. There's like a bubble around him. And everybody that goes up to him seems to grab nothing. 
and he's just walking through them. That would almost be more impressive. Either way, it'd be weird. And he cruises on out, and then verse 40 says, went, went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. He goes back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, by the way, where we first find him. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. He just baptized them and said we were bad, called us to repentance. But he also talked about you, and everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed. Because of what he said, because of what he did, and after this moment at Hanukkah, in between Hanukkah and the next Passover, many in the nation of Israel are following Christ, and yet, and at the end, all we have is 120 people. Scripture points that out too, which is interesting. They're following him, but then they fall away. But then they come back to him, and we're left with John 10, and God's holding them secure. Things we get to wrestle with. The beauty and the power of Scripture. As we wrap up and as we turn to communion, number one, there is evidence for Christ. I hope you're paying attention to it. I hope you're wrestling with it. And I know many in our culture, including people that have grown up in the church, are wrestling and wrestling away from it. Get back in the fight and keep wrestling with it. Because Jesus consistently throughout Scripture and Scripture itself consistently says, pay attention to what I say and pay attention to what God is doing, in particular here, what Jesus is doing. Because it's all the evidence that you need. And that doesn't mean that we're wrong in apologetics to argue logically with people and encourage them to come to Christ. But ultimately all we're doing is the same thing Scripture said, is we're pointing them to his words, back to Scripture, and we're pointing them to him, back to Jesus, and saying, pay attention to the evidence. He was clear. Don't ever buy the lie that people say or the error that people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. He did. They wouldn't have picked up rocks to kill him if he hadn't. But that's exactly what's playing out in John. Well, are you going to tell us or not? And he says, I did. Okay, but I'll do it again. And then you're going to try to get, kill me again, but it's not time, so it's not going to happen. But it is going to happen in a couple months because that's when it's going to be time. Because I am exactly who I said I was, and it's going to play out exactly how I said it was going to play out. Christmas is here, and the cross is coming. And then Jesus says, pay attention to the evidence. Wrestle with it all you need to. I'm patient, at least for a time. Just don't ever tap out on that wrestling match and, and not have Christ in the end. Keep in the fight until you're landing at Christ. Because the second part after wrestling with the evidence is believe and follow him. I've seen Jesus. I've heard what he said. He's amazed me. And I will follow him, and that following always leads to celebration. I will worship him. He's my savior, and he's given me reason to rejoice and sing and celebrate Christmas and Easter and every Sunday and every moment in between all of that. Whether it's gathering with friends and, ha and family and having food and parties and gifts in the name of celebrating Christ, that's biblical. Go read the end of Esther. Or it's joining your church and worshiping 
or it's riding in your car alone and singing praises to God because he is great and glorious, celebrate. That's what we turn to now. We celebrate our Savior. And I would encourage you, if you're still wrestling with the evidence for Christ, don't give up until you're celebrating with him because he's worthy of your attention and he's proven he is who he claimed to be. Let's pray. Lord, mighty holy, we praise your name. You are so worthy and you are so wonderful. May we never tire of celebrating you. Lord, I pray for those in this room that they're not at celebration yet. They're still wrestling or maybe even walking away from you. Catch their attention again, just like that crowd you were talking to in John 10. Declare to them again that you are God, our Savior, and that you redeem. And Lord, may they hear you call their name as one of your sheep and that they would follow you and join us in celebrating. Lord, we praise your name. Amen.